Good morning, and good morning to you, too. This is Gloria J. Brown Marshall, and I'm on WBAI 99.5 FM, WBAI.org. Excited to be here. I know it's been a minute, and I want to say that I thank you for all of your prayers, good wishes, and upholding me throughout my travels. I have been to Italy and to France and to Angola, all um, in search of research and writing, writing a new book, and also researching for um, something that I think is going to be pretty exciting. When I get it together, I'm going to tell you all about it. I I think you're you're going to get something from it, but I, I hope so. I hope so. And I, I want to also, because I've been away for a little minute, um, to give you a somewhat of an update on what's going on with the U.S. Supreme Court. In June, the U.S. Supreme Court reveals the decisions in its most controversial cases. It waits until the end of the term. The term begins um, in October, the first week in October, and ends in June And after they give their most controversial decisions, even though oral arguments take place all year long, um, they kind of leave the country. (laughs) And that's what they've been doing for quite some time. And so that's why we can expect these particular decisions to come out this week and next week. These decisions have been the ones they've put off for a while. Remember, And for those of you who are just joining us, thank you. But I want you to know this stat so you can like brag to your friends about it and figure out how this system works. We start with cases in the lower courts. In the lower courts, we have a judge and a jury. We have a defendant if we, you know, have a criminal case and a government. Um, The government could be the prosecutors in federal court, the prosecutors in state court, if it's a criminal case, that is. If it's a civil case, then we have a plaintiff and a defendant, and the plaintiff brings the case. In a civil case, the plaintiff has the burden of proof, and in a criminal case, the government has the burden of proof to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And then in a civil case, it depends on what type of civil case it is could be a preponderance of an evidence or or depending on what the civil case is. But here's the issue that we have. The cases make their way up to the highest court. We go through the appellate courts. And on the appellate courts, you don't have a whole trial. In the appellate court, you just have an issue. Someone may say, for example, in a criminal case, that the evidence was not put forward correctly or should have not been in the case at all. Um, They could say that um, there was a witness that should have been there that that testified in a way that they should not be allowed to testify and that prejudiced the jury and therefore the jury's decision to hold the defendant guilty um, should be overturned. Whatever it is, there's an error in that lower court. It could be, for example, in a medical malpractice case that the evidence was not presented properly. And so therefore the um, the jury should not have come to that decision and the damage amount, because in these civil cases, mostly people are getting damage awards of some kind, some monetary amount. And so that damage award should be overturned. And that case goes to the next level. So that issue then is before the Court of Appeals. And then the Court of Appeals made up of more than one judge 
it could be anywhere from from three to um, 19, depending on how large the the circuit is in federal court and circuits like, you know, the Ninth Circuit, which has the uh, California, uh, Los, uh, uh, Nevada, uh, North Dakota, not North Dakota, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm being uh, facetious, but it has a very large, large number of states that are within the um, Ninth Circuit. And the Second Circuit, that's our circuit. Our circuit is not so much a circuit that has a lot of states. It doesn't, but we have a lot of people, and so therefore a lot of cases. And if you have an opportunity, you could go to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals and sit in and watch. I actually had my students do that often, sit in and watch the courts. The court is open to the public based on the Sixth Amendment. Our courts are public, and therefore we have a, I guess, a, a higher sense of accountability because anyone can walk into that that courtroom and watch the proceedings to make sure that the judges, the court personnel, that you know the defendant, the uh, prosecutors, or the other lawyers are behaving themselves, are following the laws and rules, and are not um, violating people's rights. That openness of our court system allows for a higher accountability, and so we have that taking place. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals or the um, the Court of Appeals, the appellate courts in the, in the state um, system of New York. But when we get to the U.S. Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court decides how many cases it's going to hear. Over 10,000 attempts to have their cases before the court. We call it certiorari. And so this attempt, this writ of certiorari, requesting review by this country's highest court, um, come these requests come from the state as well as from the federal circuit. And so all of these cases are rising up in kind of a pyramid, reaching up to the U.S. Supreme Court, asking the court to hear their appeal appeal from the appellate court in either state court or or federal court of appeals. And so when we get to the U.S. Supreme Court, we only have nine justices. They are taking about 200, 250 cases a year out of 10,000 requests every year. 10,000 requests for certiorari for review. And so here then of those 250-odd cases, we have some cases that have oral arguments, meaning that the attorneys for those parties go before the court, attorneys representing the um, United States actually also go before the court asking for the court to either overturn the lower court's decision. In, in many cases, the point of being there is to give clarification. What does the law actually mean? If the law is being interpreted by courts in New York in a way that's different from um, California or Tennessee, then the U.S. Supreme Court has to decide and tell us what is the law of the land. And that's why you have this program, Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall, that speaks of the U.S. Supreme Court cases, not just for the cases themselves, but also for the people who are affected by the cases, by what's going on in law writ large, meaning all of these socio-legal issues that we're dealing with. Law is all around us from the stoplight that tells us that we have to stop or else we're going to have a criminal punishment, which is the ticket, 
um, to our businesses that have to get um, licenses um, from the school children who are being taught and they have to be taught in a certain way and and the um, ability for all of us to feel safe in having law enforcement when we do feel safe. And then that's why the fear of law enforcement means that, okay, we're paying our taxes, taxes being part of the legal system as well, that we're required to pay those taxes. And even from birth, having a birth certificate to death, having a death certificate are all part of law. This country is the most litigious country in the world. We have more lawyers, more judges, more courts, more court cases than any other country on the planet. At the same time, we have more incarcerated people. We have 5% of the world's population. So of this world, the United States of America has 5% of that population of the people on this planet. We have 25% of the world's incarcerated people. Yes, the population of incarcerated for all those who submit data on incarceration. Sometimes we don't know what's going on with China and Russia, but Of those people we know on this planet incarcerated, we have a quarter of those people and yet only have 5% of the world's total population. So that means our criminal justice system is overwhelmed. We don't have enough judges. We don't have enough prosecutors. We don't have enough people on juries. We don't have enough public defenders. We don't have enough defense counsel. And so that's why most prosecutors really push it, I would say many of them push far too hard to have defendants take a plea. All of these things, all these cases, all these issues, when there are appellate attorneys available, are rising up to our U.S. Supreme Court. We have these cases I want to talk to you about. And these cases, one, United States versus Texas. So you might have heard a little bit about the United States versus Texas case. United States versus Texas is a case that the Biden administration has basically inherited um, what we're going to do regarding um, certain policies with people who are undocumented um, in our country, undocumented or in some cases called unauthorized immigrants. And Texas and Louisiana are saying, since under the Constitution, the federal government controls immigration. States have no control over immigration. It is a federal issue under the Constitution. And so since the federal government is required under the Constitution, and only the federal government, to handle immigration. The states are saying, if the federal government fails to deport people who are in the country illegally, the states should be allowed to do it. And that these states are pushing the federal government to say that deportation seems to be focused on those people who have committed crimes and been convicted of those crimes, and then now are being deported from the country. These states are saying the federal government shouldn't just deport those people who have committed crimes. All people who are in the country in an unauthorized manner, undocumented, should be deported. So Louisiana and Texas are saying 
federal government, since you're the only one capable of actually deporting people, states are not, then they are suing and to force the federal government to um, end its policy of focusing primarily on people who have committed crimes and saying to the federal government that that is not um, a, a viable way to have a policy since the federal government is supposed to be in charge or is in charge of immigration and supposed to be deporting all people. So a policy that's focused primarily on people who commit crimes is not um, uh, doing the job that the federal government is supposed to do under the Constitution. And it argues, these two states argue in, the, in this case, that it actually violates federal law for the policy to choose, pick and choose who will be deported when they're saying that the policy should um, not be upheld and that all people should be deported who are violating um, the law by being in the country illegally. That is the United States versus Texas case, and that's a case that will be decided. Remember, we have a six-member conservative block on the court, a supermajority, as it's called, and they're only uh, in under our way of applying um, who wins and loses in the Supreme Court, five members of the court. So five four decision means that if five members of the court vote to uphold or or overturn a particular lower court decision that's on appeal, then that's enough to overturn. You don't need all nine members. You only need those five, a majority. And so since now there are six um, supermajority conservatives um, on the court and um there is a sense that this case may be one in which um, Biden administration will lose based on the fact that these conservatives who make up that supermajority have, you know, basically um, been seen as pro-Trump people who um, are conservatives, I should say, in ways that is applied to immigration. And therefore, the, the sense is they will strike down the federal government's uh, um, policy to focus more on those who have committed crimes. Here's another case in which that supermajority is going to play a major role, and that is affirmative action. There's an affirmative action case before the court. And this affirmative action case is one that involves Harvard as well as um, University of North Carolina. And these cases are cases in which the affirmative action policy is being challenged. Um, I was actually in the court for this oral argument. And if next year, when the oral arguments take place, they begin in October, you want to sit in on a case. As I said, the U.S. Constitution allows us to sit in on cases, you know, cases in your area. If you want to go to your local court, um, go into your courthouse. All you have to do is contact um, the the court itself and just look at the number or email them and ask or even go online and see when they're going to have oral arguments, when they're going to have trials. You can sit in on any of these as long as it's not family court or a case that involves state secrets of some kind, which is very rare. And you never see those published in the first place, even know when they're taking place, which is another uh, question and issue that we'll have on another show. But for this one, um, you can sit in on any of these cases. 
in lower courts, the trial court level, criminal courts. You can sit in on cases in, in the appellate court, and you can also sit in on cases at the U.S. Supreme Court. If you're in Washington, D.C., and what I say to people all the time, you have these buses for $10, $15 that will take you down to Washington, D.C. You can go down sit in on courts, go look at your capital. All those museums in Washington, D.C. are free. They're the most beautiful museums in the world, and they are free because our taxpayer money pays for them. So go see what your government is doing. You can go, go to Congress. You can actually walk in Congress and watch them working when they're working. You can actually watch them at work. Pay attention to what your government is doing. Go down and see what they're doing. It's really necessary. And for these cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, you can just go down to these cases and, and sit in court and watch them, especially if there's a particular case or maybe no case at all. You just want to see what these U.S. Supreme Court justices look like. They even have a way for you to stand in line if you only want to be in there five minutes. You can stand in line. They have a five-minute line. You might not want to spend your whole day there. You just want to see. You can get in line and for five minutes, go into the court, sit down, watch them for five minutes and get up and leave. Yes, they even have that. So what I'm saying is when I was watching the oral argument from the press box for um, North Carolina, what concerned me, the Harvard and North Carolina cases, was the fact that someone like Justice Gorsuch, um, said that affirmative action or he he basically he was um speaking about um classes in in diversity and inclusion he called them indoctrination classes indoctrination classes and the reason why i spent time telling you this is because if the u.s supreme court justice who was supposed to be objective and listening to the case to determine based on the facts and the law whether or not the case should be upheld or overturned is referring to something pivotal that's part of affirmative action when it comes to diversity and inclusion as indoctrination. You have a sense of where he falls. We know that Clarence Thomas has spoken before regarding affirmative action and said it was worse than slavery, that it was worse than slavery, affirmative action. This is the black member of the U.S. Supreme Court, Justice Clarence Thomas, the one we've talked about on this this um, show before about his problems, concerns, and um, need uh, to be investigated regarding the money he's been taking from a billionaire, Harlan Crow. Um, this is the same man who's not only repeatedly undermined anything dealing with affirmative action, while um, progressive black laws or I would say for the most part, even criminal cases. And if those criminal cases, you know, have the slightest sense that there's a need to look at the humanity behind the case or the racial prejudice behind the case, he's going to turn a blind eye. So that is one of the cases as well that we need to look at that's coming down, affirmative action, whether or not this court is going to decide that race, which is only one factor, there is no quota system. So anyone who's telling you there's a quota, please tell them that for 30 years or more, there's been nothing, nothing that is a quota system in this country. Nothing. What 
race is, is one factor among many. And here are a few of the factors that um, these admissions committees at the schools take into consideration. One factor is whether or not the student applicant comes from a single parent household. Think about that. They, they take into account whether or not English is spoken as a first, second, or third language. Yes, they, they actually look at all of these things. And then race is one of sometimes 11 factors that these admissions um, committees are taking into consideration. One of the things that was also, and I remember this when I was at Harvard last, this past fall, I was part of um, a discussion that took place on why they're bringing this action to say that affirmative action is keeping um, qualified Asian applicants from attending these schools. And this is untrue. And the Asians, and some of them represented in the group I was talking to, said they're using us. They're using us to try to stop affirmative action. They're just using us for this. They don't care about us. And I've actually talked to students and asked them, and they're just like, oh, yes, you're you're harming the, the Asian applicants. I was like, well, why is it you care so much about Asian applicants now? You didn't care about them before. But they're using this as a wedge to say that these Asian applicants or applicants who are Asian are not getting into schools because unqualified, they're trying to claim um, people of color um, are getting in. So uh, this is this is another issue for another show, but I think we need to start talking about this um, dynamic that's taking place with this phrase, people of color. Um, and too often what happens, you have people who are of African descent in this country who's, who have worked very hard to try to make access and, and progress um, against a playing field that is set up for their destruction, only to find out that the people who come into the country are falling for the game of divide and conquer. And it's been um, a very successful tactic used um, for a thousand years. So why wouldn't it it be used right now, but that doesn't mean that you have to fall for it. And unity is the best weapon against divide and conquer. I have two more cases I want to go to quickly, and then I want you to give me a call. After this musical break, I want to hear from you, 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. These two last cases I'm going to go through very quickly. One is the student loan case. And in the student loan case, the Biden administration, when Joe Biden was running for president, promised to do something about student loan debt. Well, he signed an executive order. And unfortunately, the state courts, the appellate courts, and now it's before the U.S. Supreme Court, the state court and appellate courts have struck it down. And now it's seen that the U.S. Supreme Court probably will as well, that um, the Biden administration doesn't have the authority to give to the Department of Education the power to change the contracts that students entered into when they signed the, the loan agreements to get this student loan debt in the first place. And if somebody who has student loan debt for quite some time, yes, I had the telephone calls coming to my house, coming to my job, pay this money. And then finally, I had to use part of my pension to finally pay off my student loan debt. That's how bad student loan debt is. 
And so uh, we have that case that's before the U.S. Supreme Court. And this other case, very quickly, one dealing with North Carolina and the gerrymandering that's taking place there. And uh, in this one, very quickly, is dealing with Colorado and a person, an artist in Colorado who refused to design, um, do a web design for a gay person. And so that uh, creative, 303 creative case um, out of Colorado is also a case that we'll hear more about. Ah, I know that was a lot. I try to do it quickly and hopefully it wasn't too fast, but I just wanted to give you an idea of what's going on in our U.S. Supreme Court, because although these cases look like they just involve certain people here and there, in the end, the laws will affect us. They will affect us in some way, large or small, and we need to know what is going on with them. 212-209-2877. I want to hear from you. 212-209-2877. Give me a call after this musical break. I'll be talking to you on Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall on WBAI 99.5 FM, WBAI.org. Call in and tell me what is going on in New York City? I've been out of the country. You're going to have to get me up to date. Get, keep getting me up to speed here. Tell me what's going on. Tell me what's on your mind. Um, also, I want to talk a little bit about Juneteenth. And um, that's a, that's another thing. I asked for a criminal justice reform. That's what I asked for. And we got Juneteenth that now is being called Freedom for All Day. So I'm, I'm, I'm feeling, or as the young people say, I'm kind of in my feelings about that. You know, freedom for all day. Um, Juneteenth was something that was, you know, something I have to reconcile with in the beginning, but now it's freedom for all. Hmm. Anyway, let me get back to my niceness. Good morning. You're on Law of the Land. Good morning. Yes. What, what's going on? What, what do you have to, to share with us? Oh, you're talking to me? Am I, am, yes, am I, I am. Yes, this is Gloria J. Brown Marshall. Good morning. Good morning. My name is John. I believe simplicity is success. This is all I have to say. The word is, the uppercase is Catholic, but the lowercase is Catholic. Catholic means will of the people. Universal. You said unity overcomes this divide and conquer. Simplicity is success. Thank you. So we are um, looking at unity as we best we can. Um, but I would like to um, want, I really want to um, get this sense of uh, Juneteenth and, and give us a, a sense of Juneteenth. So um, it was in 1863 that we begin to see President Lincoln decide um, that we cannot have successful um, outcome for the Union forces during the Civil War if we don't include African um, soldiers. And that was the conclusion that he came to because he was losing. And every major battle that has taken place in this country included people of African descent. And usually at that very same moment, people of color are invited in. Once 
the people see who are white in this country, they cannot win by themselves. They cannot. And so they say, oh, we're desperate. We cannot win this. We need your help. And then they turn it around to say, you need to prove to us how um, you are a, a, a viable part of this community, this country. So therefore, you can prove it by being at the lowest ranks, putting yourself there as cap- cannon fodder for the most part. And so what I'm concerned about at this moment is that Juneteenth, in which we had a lawyer, Abraham Lincoln was a lawyer, make a legal decision that he would have the emancipation of those enslaved Africans in the states that had seceded from the Union, had had broken off and started their own country. They had their own Congress, their own currency, their own constitution, their own capital. They had their own country in the South. The war started in 1861 and ended in 1865. Unfortunately, when Abraham Lincoln um, signed the Emancipation Proclamation mid-year in 1863, for it to be enacted January 1st in 1864, by the time it reached those parts of the seceded states through battle, The war was over by the time it got to Texas. So the war had ended. And in, 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 in by the time it it reached June of 1865, that's when the people near Galveston who were enslaved, who were enslaved finally got the word. So having worked for free from sunup to sundown in this country and been murdered, raped, kidnapped, every crime you can't imagine, tortured, every single crime you can't imagine, heaped upon a group of people based on the color of their skin and the fact that, talk about Catholic, the Catholic Church had said that anyone who was not Christian could be subjugated into labor. It, 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 it does something to me when we have a Juneteenth that's not discussed in a way that goes deeper into what this means. The fact that when General Granger gives the order, the order itself was lost. And I don't think it was lost. I think someone within the National Archives hid the order itself, that it just reappeared in the last few years. This order that said that people of African descent who were formerly enslaved had absolute equality. That's the phrase that's in the order, absolute equality. In the 1860s, 1865, absolute equality was in this order that disappeared. The order itself disappeared for over 100 years, hidden somewhere in the National Archives until someone finally decided to disclose it. And now we have all Freedom Day. No, uh, I have a problem with that. But maybe you don't. I'm not sure. I want to hear from you. Um, Next caller you're on Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. Good morning. And please turn down your radio if you have it on or turn down your, your whatever system you're using to listen. Good morning. Good morning, Gloria. Yes. Good morning. Yes. My name is Asaw from Harlem. And this is a question I wanted to ask you concerning Juneteenth. Well, we know approximately two years after the uh, the 
Civil War was over and blacks were allowed to become free, we can use that term. They say that the, if it, I wanted to, okay, it's a, I guess it's a three-part question, a two-part question. Do you think that the lack of reading ability of black people that were on the slave plantation was the reason why they didn't get the notice, or they said that the, the man that was supposed to go down there, he was assassinated, or three, which is the last one, that the slave owners in Texas, Galveston, Texas, knew that this was about to happen, but they wanted to get two more years of work out of these people before the order finally reached, and I just wanted to say that. And the last thing is that my condolence to Tina Turner and her family. All right, yes. sister. I'm going to close down and allow you to say what you say best. And welcome thank back. You. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. You are correct with the last one. They hid, they, they obfuscated, they did everything possible in the seceded states to prevent the information from getting to the enslaved people. They actually had notices in the newspapers, knowing that the enslaved people were forbidden from reading, but also um, knowing that they were not allowed to even be around newspapers. They wrote these articles telling white people, telling others to keep the information away from them as long as possible. Also, they knew that once these enslaved people were freed, they would go then fight for the Union forces. And that's why without the African fighting for the Union, the Union would have lost. And that's why Frederick Douglass said it's the ballot or the bullet. And we talk about um, Malcolm X saying that, but Frederick Douglass actually said it first, the ballot or the bullet, because Abraham Lincoln recognized and had to argue this point with his peers. We can't have these people fight on our behalf and we can't win without them fighting and then turn around and not give them the right to vote. It is not going to work. And so his letters, Abraham Lincoln's letters, I've read to this point, this argument, we can't win without these Africans. And that's never being said to anyone. So they could not have won this war without the, the, you know, the, the, the Africans who were fleeing from the states where the Union soldiers would come in, um, led by General Sherman and then joining the Union Army, after the Union Army initially didn't want them, then realized that they were excellent soldiers. And they also didn't want to teach or, or support uh, Black men with weapons. Because in the early 1600s, they had taken away in 1680, taken away the right of self-defense of all Africans. So if they're taking away the right of self-defense on one hand, now they have to arm them. Why? Because now they say we cannot win without you. And that part of it, and that's why I dislike the movie Glory, because it doesn't show how the Africans actually saved this country. We save this country all the time, actually save this country um, as far as the union goes from becoming its worst nightmare. Um I'm, I'm going to let the next caller come on. You, you've got me riled up. Thank you so much for asking that question. And they actually, the Civil War ended in April of 1865. And remember, 1865, April 9th, 1865, that's when the surrender took place. Juneteenth, 
June of 1865, it wasn't that they couldn't read the notice. It was on the paper and it's like notice everywhere for them to see. It was hidden from them until June and the war ended in April. I mean, just think about this. Absolute equality is in that order. That's why they didn't want the people to know about it. They did everything they could until April. I mean, until June and the war ended in April. Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry. You're on Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. Good morning. Good morning. This is Miriam in Westchester. How are you? I'm doing well. So welcome home, Miss Drew. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So listen, um, hell yeah, I feel a certain kind of way about Juneteenth being named Old Freedom Day. As it is, in our town in New Rochelle, they celebrate it for a whole month. And all kinds of funding is being given to have activities. And what happens? We see them hiring a uh, mariachi band, a Hispanic band, <laughs> instead of hiring black folks. Where the, and it's a lot of the folks who are getting the funding in organizations are led by black people. And they're like, oh, we've got to be all inclusive. Yet when they have their functions and their holidays, they don't make it all inclusive and hire black bands and make sure that everybody, you know, gets gets um, the business and the capital, you know, and, and benefit from that. They don't make sure that happens. But here we are just opening it up to everyone. The other thing is it's, it's relatively new. It wasn't known throughout the nation. And you know we don't do a good job teaching our kids history. So our kids are still learning about it. Many adults are still learning about it. So at no point is it okay for us to dilute it and make it something more than or less than what it is for us. Um, so that's one. The other thing is, since you've been out of town, of course, you know, the primaries are going on. We're in the middle of early voting. And one of the things that um, people think that ranked choice voting is great. I don't think so. I'm watching New York City do it. And to me, what it does is it, it, it stays, it keeps everybody in the middle. So folks who would be, like, really progressive and really make a difference and an improvement and a change, they're not going to be, they're not going to come in because you've got this ranked choice vote, which is why I think one of the reasons Maya didn't win and we got, you know, Adam. Um, so I think that's something that New York really needs to start to think about and and and, and reverse that. Um, we are, in our in Nourishell, we have primary going on and we have a mayor's race. And it's between, you know, a Jewish guy who always stands with the people. And then we have um, this young lady who just moved to Nourishell, like maybe about five, six years ago. And she's, you know, she has a brown vagina. And we're supposed to be all, you know, power to the people with the movement. But she never represents us. Never. And she's the district. She's now the city council for a black majority, black area. And she lets. All kinds of policies go to place, including drive-throughs, including decimating a board for municipal housing that was wet. I was ready to make it more of a home ownership for those residents. Um, they just fired them on New Year's Eve. No problem. No questions asked. So these are some of the things going on. Welcome back, Gloria. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much for bringing me up to date. I mean, I appreciate it. 
Um, I, I, I know there's early voting. I haven't voted yet, but that's what my plan is. And to, to get that voting in, you know, I've, I've got to talk about voting rights and we're going to have a show coming up soon on voting rights. Thank you for reminding everyone for early voting. Go ahead. They said 14,000 people voted out of, out of how many millions? 14,000. Don't embarrass yourself and your family. Don't embarrass the ancestors. For those of you who are from generations who have come from Europe, from Asia, from other from other lands, from Africa, don't embarrass your ancestors who gave up so much to come here because of it's supposed to be a democracy and now you don't vote. Don't don't embarrass your ancestors. Okay. So I'll leave it at that. I won't go anymore because I want to get to my next caller. And and thank you so much. Um, you're on Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. Good morning. Good morning, then. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you for being on the show. Okay. Thank you. In fact, I do enjoy your show talking about the laws of the land, but I do have a question about police brutality with the with law enforcement. They seem to be constantly attacking me in different states. I try to hire lawyers in different states. But for some reason, they're not taking my cases. Like Rodney King, he was assaulted by police. He sued. But for some reason, they're not taking my cases in different states. So I think something's going on there. Like something has to be behind that. Well, I I don't know. You're saying about Rodney King's case or about your case? I'm saying Rodney King's case and my case are similar. I was assaulted by law enforcement in two different states, in New York and Chicago. In New York and Chicago, no lawyers would take my case. So I'm saying something's going on. Well, probably. I mean, um, I would say first and foremost, um, it's a good thing that you are making note of it that is very difficult to find lawyers to take these types of cases. There, There are... Um, basically, um, the type of cases that require, uh, specialized knowledge. But I would suggest that you go to the, um, New York Bar Association or the New York City Bar Association. They have referrals for attorneys. Um, also, I, I would like for you to go, if you can, and file a complaint with the district attorney's office. Um, that they're not taking the case. And that's something that people can do. You can file a complaint that certain cases aren't being taken by the, by the DA's office. Um, because a criminal case is a case that the, the prosecutors have to bring against a police officer. But you can also bring a civil case. And that's why I was saying there are certain attorneys that work on civil cases against the police departments as well and against, against police officers. Okay. So, um I want us to uh I don't know if we have another caller, but if we do, we we're down to the last minute. Um and what I can um okay. I'm not going to I was going to start another topic, but I'm not. I'm going to go back to you because you and I have not had a chance to talk. So let's go to another caller. Um, you're on Law of the Land. Good morning. This is Gloria J. Brown Marshall. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, thank you. Uh, I miss you. 
<laughs> thank you. Uh, listen, I'm talking about. I want to talk about the Supreme Court. When you, people talk about going to court, they think of going to a neutral branch, a neutral people that would make decisions in a neutral manner, not in political. But here, everything seems to be political, conservative, and and, and liberal. You know, it it's, it's not a neutral court where you can get a neutral decision. Everything seems to be political. So is that Supreme Court, is that just a farce? Is that just something, a feel-good to make people feel good? You know what? I'm so glad you asked that question because um, they usually look at a court and look at the temperament of the justices or the person who's attempting to be a judge. I clerked for a state court judge as well as a federal court judge after law school. And... um, I, I, and one of the criteria, uh, criterion for a Supreme Court justice is, um, for them to have a temperament, um, that allows them to be objective. So to be part of the criteria, um, for a Supreme Court justice is to be objective, to be ranked by the American Bar Association and and other bar associations as someone who is able to objectively decide a case. All that went out of the window. We know individuals have backgrounds. We all have certain biases. We all come from particular places. But what has happened in the last 10 years, and especially under the um, Trump administration, is a politicization of the court to the point where Donald Trump asked for a list of people who would overturn Roe versus Wade, who would continue to have a a conservative um, decision-making process, no matter what, who, you know, and as you saw with Amy Coney Barrett and, and others, that they don't answer questions during the vetting process or the judicial hearing from the Judiciary Committee which is part of the constitutional requirement that they have this hearing, but there's no requirement as to what answers or responses they're supposed to give. And we saw with um, Judge uh, Katanji Brown Jackson that she was ridiculed for following the law. And um, basically they look at these, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, we have the votes, so we don't have to answer any questions. We have the votes in the Senate, so we don't have to respond honestly. They knew when they were hired to go to the highest court that they had an expectation to follow a conservative agenda, that certain cases were going to be overturned. So they were disingenuous at best lying at worst when they decided, oh, we're just going to follow the law. Um, Even Chief Justice John Roberts, when he was an attorney, came up with the formula to gut the Voting Rights Act. That's why they wanted him on the high court. And it's his Trojan horse of a theory that ended up being the 2013 basis for the Shelby County versus Holder decision that that rendered the preclearance within the Voting Rights Act unconstitutional. So there have been um, instances before, I'm sure, in which people were chosen for the court because they had a particular ideological background. I give that. But to the point where not just having that ideological background, but requiring they maintain it for a lifetime appointment 
That's why Justice Clarence Thomas and his the gifts that he received, the vacations, the money that paid for his um, uh, grandnephew's tuition that was like $50,000 a year, the fact that his mother's uh, mortgage payment is being paid by Harlan Crow, all of this means he will always be beholden to that conservative ideological agenda. And so why should we, as Justice um, Chief Justice Roberts is telling us, it's like we should still believe in the court. And um, when we saw the overturning of Roe versus Wade and, and, and we heard that Justice Sotomayor was saying the stench, she used the word stench, the stench of these decisions will run deep, the stench. And that's what you're talking about. That's what we're seeing, the stench of what we believe to be a partially objective branch of government. We know that the president's going to run on a certain platform. They, When they're running for office, they tell you what they're going to do or want to do when they get in office. And people vote for them based on what they say they want to do, even though they represent everybody. These are the things they plan on doing. Congress people run on a particular platform and they represent their constituency. They don't even tell us they represent everybody. They say, I represent my district. That's or my state. That's what I represent. What they want, that's what I'm going to do. But the Supreme Court is supposed to be objective. They swear to be objective. And our Supreme Court justices, especially the supermajority of conservatives, led by Chief Justice Roberts, who's, and I call it again, Trojan horse of a voting rights policy, open the door for all of this to happen that we see right now. It should all fall on his shoulders. Maybe he didn't know, but in the end, perhaps he did not know that they had a plan well beyond his small part to allow the court to be used in this way, but it falls on his shoulders. Just like Colin Powell, was part of the administration that said, we're going to go attack Iraq. And he was the Trojan horse that let them do it. And then we had all the consequences later. These egos of people who actually believe they can control an engine that has a destiny in their minds well beyond this one pawn. And that's what Colin Powell was used as. And that's what Chief Justice Roberts was used as. And then they find themselves drowning in the stench that Justice Sotomayor tells us about because they were used for something greater, far greater purposes than they ever had in mind. And now this is what we have, a court that people don't believe in, that has the lowest um, rating among people um, than is, that it's ever had in the history of the court that they've been taking these ratings from people to decide um, their belief in our Supreme Court. So thank you for raising that. Yes, you're right. You're not, not don't be gaslighted into believing this court right now with a super majority of conservatives is anything but a political engine for a conservative agenda. And at the same time, we will keep fighting because if we did not keep fighting, then just think where we would be. And for those people who believe that change has not taken place, yes, it has. There should be more, but we would do an injustice to our ancestors who would continue to fight for us not to keep the fight up despite the odds, or we would be in dire situations worse than we are right now if we believe that these people can do more as 
human beings than the belief system I have that says they are not God. Thank you so much. And Michael G., before you tell me, I am ending my show. I'm so excited to have been back and to hear from you. And I look forward to many more discussions. And thank you, Michael G. I'll see you. on the radio.